Well, I've discovered in life that uh, great stories have great beginnings, right? But they also have great endings. Endings really matter in stories. And whether it's a book we read or a movie we watch, story endings can do a couple things. One, they can wrap up the story nice and tidy. Or they can whet our appetites for what is coming. Anybody here this morning a fan of the Bourne movies? I'm a real Jason Bourne fan, and uh, I think there are four, if I got it right. I think I've seen four. But I remember the ending, I think it was the second one, like there's the Bourne identity, supremacy. Some of you are experts at all this. Um, But I remember the ending of this, I think it was the second movie. Uh, And uh, it was amazing to me how the filmmakers understand endings matter. I mean, certainly to keep the story going, but to pad their pockets, right? But at the end of this movie, right before everything went black, what we had was a scene where Jason Bourne is the hero of the story, and Jason Bourne is up on a high building. He's right at the edge with no place to go. And his pursuer has a gun drawn on him, right? That looks pretty bleak. And so you wonder, is this the end of Jason Bourne? Is this the end of the story? Is this how it ends? And right when you think the screen is going black, Jason Bourne jumps off the building like Superman, and you hear this splash in the water as the gun fires. And you're wondering, did the gun hit its target? Did Jason survive this long fall? And right as you're wondering it, you see this shimmering picture of a lifeless silhouette of a body floating in the water. And you think, oh, it's over. And as the screen begins to darken, (laughs) the lifeless silhouette does what? It begins to move. And you know that it is not the end of the story, but rather there is more to come. Now, when we think of the story of Genesis, I think there's a lot of similarities. Because the writer of Genesis, as we look through the Bible this year, as we look at the first book, we begin to see that the ending really matters to the Genesis writer. And the ending is saying there's more to come, and it whets our appetite. Now, whether you've been in church all your life, whether you've read the Bible or not, whether I'm not sure where you are in your spiritual life or journey or knowing about the Bible, but most of us probably know how the Bible begins. I mean, the astronaut said it on the moon, right? In the beginning, God. I mean, Genesis 1 starts big, no doubt. So if I were to ask anybody here, I think you'd say, it's about God creating the world. That's the beginning. But how many of us could tell, uh, tell someone else about the ending? You know, it seems in our minds that Genesis starts big and ends kind of like a whimper. But I want to suggest to you that the ending is not a whimper at all. It is extraordinarily important. And if you brought a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to the ending of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. Now, let's review just a little bit as we work our way through the book. Genesis begins, again, with God creating the world. God is the main character of Genesis. He is the architect of all creation. And then as Genesis moves on, God, the architect, becomes the big promise maker. God makes a big promise to Abraham, and the underlying tension throughout the whole book is, will God make good on His promises? So the writer 
ties a thread to the genealogical history of God's covenant people. He begins with Adam, then Noah, then Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. So all the way through we have this thread and the tension builds. Is God going to come through on His promise? That's how Genesis is structured from a storyline standpoint. And what we see in the book is that there are threats to God coming through in His promises. There are challenges, there are tensions. One of them is the infertility of, I, uh, of Sarah. Remember, Abraham's going to have all this, these tons of kids and, and, and descendants, and there's nothing. But also, as we move through Genesis, we also now see another threat, and that's famine. Famine that's going to create starvation for God's covenant people and eradicate the promise. So this is where Joseph's story comes in. As we end Genesis, you will notice that there are a couple new challenges emerging. That is, when we hit Genesis chapter 50, as it closes, there is a challenge of unfinished family business or unfinished family hurts, but also unfulfilled family hopes. So Genesis ends this way. Genesis ends with a burst of faith. Begins with a big bang and ends with a burst of faith. It looks back at a hurtful past, and it looks forward to a hopeful future, and it connects the three or the two with looking through the eyes of faith. That's where we're going this morning. Looking back at the hurtful past, looking forward to a hopeful future through the eyes of faith. So let's begin. Let's start with chapter 50, verse 14. If you have your Bible open or your electronic Bible open, we see these words. After he buried his father... Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now, if we enter back into the story, we realize that this must have been a long trek back to Egypt for Joseph and his brothers. If you've been to a funeral lately of family members, you know that funerals often bring up stuff from the past. There's often things festering and there's lots of memories bombarding every person. So you can imagine Joseph and his brothers walking back to Egypt. If you step into Joseph's shoes, you realize that Joseph had walked this path before, many, many years ago as a young boy. And as Joseph walks back, I imagine him reflecting on the first time he walked this path. I imagine Joseph looking back at his life and hearing the clanging of the shackles around his ankles, his bloodied feet as he walks from his homeland to Egypt as a trafficked slave. I imagine him as he walks and goes back to that moment thinking of the searing pain of what his brothers had brutally beaten him and left him for dead, being in that pit and the pain of that and the abandonment. Imagine Joseph feeling the hopeless despair of being sold at an auction as a slave, as property in Egypt to Potiphar. I imagine him thinking about the helpless agony of being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And I imagine him hearing once again the clanging of the bars of the prison doors and the shivering cold of the king's prison. Joseph must have had a long trek back to Egypt. 
But I also imagine as he looks back that he feels a kind of exhilarating joy as he thinks back to the unimaginable that at 30 years of age, (laughs) this little boy from the sticks is promoted to being the second most powerful person in the world as Pharaoh's right-hand man at 30 years. And not only that, I can imagine him having the joy of being newly married to his beautiful new wife, Asenath, and holding his precious children, Manasseh and Ephraim, in his hands. So as he treks back to Egypt, there is a lot on Joseph's mind. But let's think for a moment what it was like for his brothers to walk back to Egypt. They had a lot on their mind too, don't you think? And most important on their mind to the Genesis writer is the future. Because Joseph is the second most powerful man perhaps in the world, their young brother. And the question that is occupying their mind is, is Joseph going to settle the score now? After all, dad's dead. So the Genesis writer enters us into this dynamic. Now, whatever their motives are, the brothers send a message to Joseph. They, They don't appear on Oprah Winfrey's show for their confession, like we saw this week. They send him a message, and the text says that they then fall down before Joseph, and they call a spade a spade. We don't know their motives, but boy, they lay it out. It's a true confession. They did evil. You better believe it. And they ask for forgiveness. Now, the question is, how will Joseph respond? How will Joseph look back at his hurtful past of his family? Look with me at verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, notice, do not fear... For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and the little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, if you remember all the twists and turns and ups and downs in Joseph's life story, You might think of perhaps when he resisted the advances of Potiphar's wife, this being Joseph's finest hour as a young, red-blooded guy. But I want to suggest that this is Joseph's finest hour. Joseph sees his broken family, his hurtful past, through not a lens of prideful revenge. But as a Genesis writer postures us in Joseph's shoes... We see the past through the eyes of confident faith. Confident faith, notice, in a God who not only created the world, as Genesis opens, but a God who is actively working to accomplish His purpose in the world for good. Joseph sees God as the creator and the conductor that all of history is playing on God's sheet of music. Danish philosopher and Christian Soren Kierkegaard said this. He said, we live our lives forward but we understand them backward. In other words, there's a lot of wisdom to that. The 2020 hindsight gives us a better perspective on how life doesn't make sense often when we're younger. Sometimes it doesn't make sense when we're older, but if you're younger here today, I want to encourage you that with a bit of time, sometimes you can see, oh, that's how this fits together. Even at the time, it didn't make any sense. But if we look at Joseph's last finest hour, 
we must not see it through the lens of hindsight. We must see it through the lens of faith sight. That is how Joseph is looking through the eyes of faith. Now, notice Joseph doesn't play God. He says to his fearful brothers, don't fear, I'm not in the place of God. What's he saying? He's saying only God fully knows everything. Only God has that vantage point. Only God is our judge. And he looks at his hurtful past with his family through God's mysterious providence. Adam Smith called providence the invisible hand. Yet in our cultural context, often, We're rather skeptical of any hand, let alone an invisible one, aren't we? We often read Joseph's story through our contextual lens of radical skepticism of our times. We we say, well, it it just happened that Joseph had dreams about the future. It just so happened that he survived his brutal beating by his brothers. It it just so happened that the Midian... Human traffickers, slave traders were coming by just at that time. It just so happened that he ended up in Egypt. That's a coincidence. It just just happened that he was bought by Potiphar, who's one of the leaders of Pharaoh's government. It just so happened that he was spared execution, which was never the case. Being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of sexual advance. It just, just so happened he, spared, he was spared that and he ended up in the king's prison. It just, just so happened. It just so happened when he was in prison, he encountered other prisoners that were tied to the king's court. It just so happens that when Pharaoh had a dream, it just so happened he had this troubling dream and it just so happened that someone remembered Joseph could interpret dreams. And it just so happened that Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And it just so happened that Pharaoh gave Joseph the second-in-command place of the most powerful nation on earth. It just so happened. Coincidence. It just so happened his brothers came to Egypt. It was all coincidence, right? Not from Joseph's perspective. Joseph looks through the lens of faith And he sees a providential God working even in the midst of the most hurtful and painful mess and memories of his family. But notice Joseph doesn't sugarcoat things, does he? He shoots at straight, says, you meant evil against me. But Joseph sees the evil in light of a bigger story. And he communicates that. God meant it for the good. What does that mean? Not only the good of his family and the covenant promise, but good for the people of Egypt. People that didn't even worship the one true God because they were facing famine too. God cares for the whole world. This is his father's world, right? If you put yourself in Joseph's sandals, as he was going through his life, little could have made much sense for him, right? He must have thought through the twists and turns that life didn't make any sense. He must have thought several times as he looked at his life in the, in the now, is that, where are you, God? I've served you. I've loved you. You're just silent. 
Where are you? It's interesting that the Genesis writer attaches a marker, a literary marker to Joseph. He does not attach to the other characters in Genesis. You know what it is? It is this little phrase. It's repeated all through his story. The Lord was with Joseph. Chapter 39, it's just constant. What is the Genesis writer telling us? Even when God seems hauntingly silent, and when everything seems against us, God is with us. Christian writers and followers of Jesus have talked about the faith journey that often encounters what they call the dark night of the soul. It's a time in many believers' lives where it seems like God completely goes silent and life completely doesn't make sense and everything is dark. Joseph experienced that. And I have too. One of the most difficult times in my life was when I was 18 years of age. I just graduated from high school. I came to faith as a young boy. I wanted to serve and love Jesus and follow him. But for some unknown reason to me, beyond any of my comprehension, it seemed as if God had gone silent and life did not make sense. And I was overwhelmed by the hurtfulness of my past, particularly my father's death. So every morning, maybe you've been there, maybe you experienced it, every morning I woke up with this cloud of darkness as I opened my eyes. For the whole summer, I entered into this depression, this struggle. And one of the things that kept me tethered to hope was Joseph's story. Because I was 18, I knew Joseph was 17 in the Bible, and somehow God could take his silence the messes of my life and make something of it. But during that time, I just cry out, Lord, are you there? Do you care? Do you know what's going on? Do you know what you're doing? Maybe you're there this morning. Maybe circumstances in your life don't make sense. Maybe it's a shattered dream. Maybe it's intense doubt. If it's a broken relationship that haunts you, family matters. And you're crying out in the quiet desperation that Thoreau said of every heart cries out, a quiet desperation. Where are you, Lord? Where are you? Do you care? Do you know what you're doing? Joseph's life story speaks into that. Pastors need to hear that too. I've been reading a book recently that's just ripped me up inside. It's a book called Dangerous Calling, and it feels like when I read it, it's like going through one of those heart scans to see all the prideful plaque that has been attached to my heart and what we're really about at heart level. And David Tripp writes these words. He says, it is in moments of hardship when, that, when what God is doing doesn't make any sense that it's all the more important to preach to ourselves the gospel of his unshakable, unrelenting, ever-present care. He is actively caring for you and me, even in those moments when we don't understand his care and can't figure out what he's doing. I think Joseph was there several times. I know I've been there. I know pastors can be there, and I know all of us can be there. 
So Joseph's life challenges, will you trust God in the midst of the messiness of life? Maybe some of you have some big hurts you're wrestling with. Joseph gives us two nuggets of timeless wisdom as we deal with past hurts. First, don't play God. Stop judging others. Stop blaming God. Stop being God's Monday morning quarterback as if you have a better grasp of things than God does. Give God the benefit of your doubts. Give Him time. But also, trust God's providence. This is where Joseph is. God is not only the creator of the world, He's the conductor of all of human history. And the good God has in mind that He's orchestrating the world is more than just about you. It is about you, but it's much grander. Romans 8.28 reminds us that All things work together for the good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. Through the eyes of faith, we can see God is for us and with us when everything seems against us. And Joseph's life in Genesis begins to build to say God does not only have your back, He has your good in mind. Joseph looks back through the eyes of faith, but he looks forward through the eyes of faith. Notice the hopefulness that Genesis ends with. Think back with me. Genesis 37, Joseph is 17 years of age. At 17, his mind is heady. I mean, he's filled with heady dreams. And as Genesis 50 ends, we have Joseph, let's just say he's a rather old dude, 110. But his heart is filled with humble faith. Joseph's last words you must not miss. It speaks to a hopeful future. Look with me at 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and shall carry up my bones from there. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph's last words are not a whimper of regret. They are this shout of buoyant faith. When I read these verses, I have to think of one of my favorite characters in Toy Story. You like Toy Story? Great animation. And it's not Woody, it's Buzz Lightyear. Buzz has this buoyant enthusiasm, right? And he jumps into the situation, no matter what it is, and he says, to infinity and beyond. This is how Genesis ends. Joseph has a buzz-year-light faith, and with this burst of enthusiasm, he says, "Ah, to Exodus and beyond. The story continues. And notice the repetition of the phrase. Twice Joseph says, God will surely visit you. Twice. The day they leave Egypt, on their way to the land of promise. But notice Joseph's words also give final instructions that seem to surprise us about his burial. He doesn't tell his family to bury his body or his bones, the scriptures say here, in opulent tombs in Egypt. If you've ever been there, that's a pretty cool place to be. I mean, it's amazing what they did. No, rather, he wants to be buried someday in the austere land of Canaan. And Joshua will tell us later down the story that 
they take Joseph's bones back to Shechem. See, sometimes we think of Joseph, we think, man, he had a great life. I mean, he was a life of faith. We always think about his life. We seldom think about his radiant death. In the New Testament, we have what we call the Hebrews Hall of Faith. You know, the Hall of Fame for football and basketball or whatever. But the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a list of the Hall of Faithers, the giants of the faith. Joseph is there. We're not surprised. But we would think that as Joseph's life is honored, this amazing life, we would think, oh, they're going to highlight some of the high points of his life, like saying no to Potiphar's wife or forgiving his brothers even. Uh-uh. In Hebrews, we see that the writer wants to tell us about faith in Joseph's death. Joseph's death and how he approached it. Because we learn that through the eyes of faith, we not only live well, we die well. Now notice in Hebrews eleven twenty two, it says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The writer of Genesis wants us to remember, first and foremost, not Joseph's life, but his death and how he saw it through the eyes of faith. The big story doesn't end. Exodus is just around the corner. The life story of Joseph is awesome. It's fun. It's dynamic. But it points to a bigger story that is being played out in the stage of human history. It is a story that speaks into your life and mine today. Joseph was able to look at the hurts of his past through the eyes of faith. And he was able to look at an uncertain future through the eyes of faith as well. What the writer of Genesis does, very sophisticatedly in his literary form, is that he ends Genesis by allowing the reader to put on a new set of glasses. You ever have the three Ds at a movie? This is 4D vision. Because we began to see all the rest of the story come into focus when we see it through spiritual vision and faith. Helen Keller, you know, had many physical challenges, but she had great insight. Helen Keller was asked once about the tragedy of her being born blind, and this is what she said. The greatest tragedy in life is not to be born blind, but to have been given eyesight, but lack true vision. True vision comes, the Genesis writer says, when we look at the world our life's past, the future through the eyes of faith. Genesis is not only the backdrop of a bigger story. It tells us to put on a new set of glasses and how we see the world. So what do we learn about faith in this story? Last week, we learned two foundational threads in this tapestry that's woven all the way through Genesis. First is that you and I were designed to live by faith in God. That the primary sense of Adam and Eve in the garden before sin entered the world is faith, not eyesight or earsight or touch or taste. That we were created to live in humble intimacy and dependence on God. That's how we were designed to flourish. Faith is how we were designed to live. Secondly, we often think of faith as wishful thinking, don't we? <laughs> you know, it's like we're going to watch football out of us this afternoon. 
And we're going to hope for our team, if they're down the last second, right? It's the Hail Mary pass. All respect to Mary there. But it's the idea that when there's no other option, right? I mean, when you're behind and the only way you can win is throwing this big Hail Mary pass. It's the wishful thinking. You throw up a hope and a prayer. We think of faith as wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking. It's, it's not something of last resort. It's something of first resort. Faith is not wishful thinking. It is promise thinking and trusting in the God of the promise who is present with us. But this morning, as Genesis ends, the third truth emerges about faith that helps us understand the whole story this year, y'all. And that is faith at its most fundamental level is paradoxical. We use the language, don't we, like, well, the more you know, the less you know. It's a paradox. Faith is like that. Because faith brings greater mystery and greater clarity. Both. Faith is both mystifying and clarifying. Faith raises new questions and gives us new understanding. This is what we see in the end of Genesis. In Hebrews 11, we read this, these words. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You go, hmm. How can we have conviction of things we can't see? We can when we look through the eyes of faith. And when we look through the eyes of faith, we discover mystery and clarity. So let me raise two questions for you. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, however you see faith, let me raise two questions. First, will you make room for greater mystery in your life? There is much we don't know. There is much in our life experience that we're not going to make sense of. Why things happen to us, why things are the way they are, why God does what he does, what he doesn't, quote, do. Yet these unanswered questions should not be an impediment to faith. They should be an opportunity for faith. And hear me carefully. Mystery is not faith's dead end. Mystery is the sturdy bridge to greater understanding and deeper intimacy with God. Oswald Chamber captures this beautifully in his utmost for the highest. He speaks about, I love this phrase. I think he's the first one I've ever read that used this phrase. It's called gracious uncertainty. I love this. This is what he says. Listen. Certainty is the mark of the common sense life. Gracious uncertainty is the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways, not knowing what tomorrow may bring. This is generally expressed with a sigh of sadness, but it should be an expression of breathless expectation. We are uncertain of the next step, but we are certain of God. And as soon as we abandon ourselves to God and do the task He has placed closest to us, He begins to fill our lives with surprise. So will you make room in your mind and heart for gracious uncertainty, for greater mystery? For a breathless expectation that God is good and He is at work in your life and in the world and He will make good on His promises. Will you look through the eyes of faith? And Will you experience the delightful childlike wonder of new hope and expectation? Martin Luther King Jr. said this beautifully about the mystery of faith. He said, faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. <laughs> I like that. Faith embraces mystery. But faith also embraces 
clarity. Some of us are drawn more to mystery. Some of us want all clarity. But faith brings both. We live in a culture in terms of human history that is radically skeptical of everything. We are skeptical that we can know anything, that everything we know is somehow conditioned by our own cultural context and personal experience. And all we are left to understand is our own navel, our own opinion, our own experience. Nothing else matters or exists or is true. But through the eyes of faith, the truest truths of the universe can be known. And the person of truth, the one who said, I am the way and the truth and life, can be truly known. Well-meaning folks come up to me, and I love these conversations. They're skeptical of the Christian faith. And they come up to me and they say, Tom, if I just had more proof, you know, if I just knew more, then I could have more faith and trust God. But this line of thinking is fundamentally misunderstanding of the nature of faith itself. For faith by its nature is clarifying. The truth is not that if we do more, then we'd have more faith. The truth is if we had more faith, then we would know more. If I know enough, then I can believe? Hmm. If I believe enough, then I can know. That's the picture Joseph gets us. That's the Genesis picture. See, the greatest challenge to faith and the eyes of faith It's not that faith in Scripture and in Jesus Christ and the Christian faith is incoherent to the thoughtful mind. It is because our hearts are spiritually blind. And unlike physical blindness, when we are spiritually blind, we don't know we're blind. Rabbi Paul was a religious leader who was blind spiritually until he encountered the good news of the gospel and the risen Christ. And on that dusty road to Damascus, his life was changed. And the writer of the book of Acts says something I think we miss. When Ananias lays his hands on Paul, it says something like scales fell from his eyes. When we encounter the good news of the gospel, we are given new eyes to see the gospel of grace. When we come to the end of ourselves, grace welcomes us with open arms. John Newton understood this amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm fine. I was once blind, but now I see. As we come to the end of Genesis, we begin to put on a new set of glasses the glasses Joseph wore. We look back at the past through the eyes of faith. We look forward with a hopeful future through the eyes of faith. We embrace both greater mystery and clarity. And Joseph's life points us to another favored son, a promised son who would one day come and visit planet Earth. You notice how Joseph talks about God visiting, God visiting, dwelling with us. A son who would bring an exodus from the enslavement to sin, a favored son who would face the most unimaginable suffering and rejection, not because of anything he had done, but what we had done. Our Lord Jesus, the son of the promise, a compassionate savior, who would not give us a dose of our own medicine, but extend to us the most mercy and great forgiveness. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. The salvation of many. We live well and we die well when we see through the eyes of faith. Where are you this morning? Will you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? If you've never repented of your sin, your spiritual blindness, and placed your trust in Christ, may this morning be a morning where the scales fall off your eyes. It is nothing you can do. It is 
what Jesus has already done for you on the cross. Will you accept that grace gift this morning and have new eyes? And if you know Christ this morning, will you look through your hurtful past through the eyes of faith? Will you look to the future that often causes you fear through the eyes of faith and find new joy in your life? Joseph reminds us that God is there for you even when life seems completely against you. Joseph looked beyond the hurtful past and saw a hopeful future. How about you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our prayer this morning is that you would open our eyes to the glory of God, to the glory of our risen Savior, to Christ, that you would allow us to look at life in the present, in the past, and look to a future through the eyes of hopeful faith. Lord, show us your glory. In Jesus' name.